Hey guys, thanks for listening to this Crab Chats podcast. In this podcast, I'm talking to Ryan Hoover from Fit to Fight. Ryan has a long history in Krav Maga and is known for his no BS approach to self-defense fighting and Krav Maga. Some find his views a bit controversial, but his willingness to voice his views has opened up a dialogue about topics that affect the wider Krav Maga community. This was a really interesting chat and we're grateful for the opportunity to speak with him. There we go. How are you, Ryan? I'm great. You? Yeah, I'm good, man. I'm good. What's been happening with you? Ah, uh, staying busy, man. Lots going on. You've been teaching today, just having a weekend off? Sunday, unless I'm traveling, Sunday is about the only day that I don't work. So no travel today, so no work today. I got in the gym a little bit, but no teaching. That's good, man. That's good. I try to do the same thing, give myself a day off. Yes, sir. Pretty hectic lifestyle, mate. Most people don't realize that us guys are working our ass off, pushing our businesses, you know, trying to take it to the next level. Yeah, it's pretty nonstop. I, I, I think it is if you're, you know, if you're really passionate about what you do, it is. Absolutely. So, mate, thank you for coming along and having a chat with us. I appreciate the opportunity. No worries. We've been trying to push this for a while, going back and forth, and um, finally we've gotten there. Absolutely awesome, uh, Ryan. Thanks, mate. And, mate, I just wanted to, you know, have a good 45 minutes to an hour of your time and just have a chat about the sort of things you're doing. We've been, you know, myself and a lot of lot of the guys here from down under um, and other people I know around the world have been really watching you and, you know, we've got a lot of respect for you, man. We think what you're doing is great. Really just sort of getting outside the box of Krav Maga and, stepping outside and mate it takes a brave man i watched your fma chat the other day <laughs> <laughs> mate i was shocked at first i thought doug was i felt that even um these guys were trying to kind of discredit you it felt like that at first sure even doug looked like he had some you know, reptile eyes on yep but in the end mate uh, i saw it for what it was and um it really just made a good discussion it's it's kind of like the the way that we feel Krav Maga and I guess all other other systems and styles and whatnot need to go towards. So good on you, mate. And um, I think most people would have felt super uncomfortable with that interview. <laughs> Can you tell us a little about that, mate, and how that came about? Sure. So I do a good bit of work with Funker Tactical, and I flew to Toronto to shoot some video for a knife that I designed. Mm-hmm. That's getting ready to be released. And in the course of that, you know, I'm shooting a, a training video on, you know, incorporating knife into self-defense and fighting. And I'm saying things that I guess are a bit controversial. So that leads to Funker asking me questions and me answering questions. And I'm pretty straightforward in the way that I approach things. Um, and I understand that a lot of times that's not always taken well. But they asked me about the idea of a knife fighter and I gave my answer and Man, it was poorly received in the in the Filipino martial arts community, and so I was asked to participate in in a call. When I was asked, it wasn't presented to me as it would be on Facebook Live. I actually found out about that in a a Facebook notification, which was fine. You know, I mean, I still agreed to do it. And then the other thing was, I didn't know that there'd be forty students in <laughs> in the room at, at the same time as well, which and my only thing about that was I felt like those guys that were on that panel had been teaching those students for two days. 
So I felt it was kind of hard for them to, and maybe it wasn't, I don't know, but it seems like it would be kind of hard for them to speak quite as openly as maybe they would have otherwise. But very early on, I kind of realized what the deal was and where the conversation was going and felt like they felt a need to just vent a bit. So I kind of sat back and, and let that happen. And, you know, I made a few points here and there, but for the most part, I let them lead the dialogue. And I saw no point in getting into a big argument about it. My stance is what it is. Theirs is what it is. I can tell you since then, I've had a lot of conversations from people all over the world, mostly positive, mostly agreeing. And I've even talked to some of the people on that panel since then that have been pretty positive. It's like anything, man. I, our approach is not going to be for everybody. And I, I understand why the video was taken the way it was. When I first started kind of poking the crowd guy community a little bit, I got similar responses. I do think in the Krav Maga community, though, people were a little bit more concerned with their business. I think the FMA guys took it a little bit more personally, which I feel a bit worse about that. You know, it, it, it certainly wasn't anything personal. So I, I've had, like I said, I've had a lot of conversations with some of those guys since then, and it's been mostly positive. And at the end of the day, I can only speak for our thinking and how we believe. And, you know, I got to hold true to that. So, yeah, yeah. Now you said something interesting on there that if you hadn't done what you hadn't done, or what you had done, sorry, there wouldn't be this discussion. And I really felt that way at the end, even though it was kind of, I think at the end, everyone just kind of understood each other a little bit more and agreed to disagree. And uh, as I said, you're a really brave man. I think these discussions are really, really important for us, you know, Krav Maga people and, and whoever else really just to, just to evolve and, and do as we say we do. And you brought that up in other videos too, the no offense videos, which are pretty cool. So it's good, mate. With the knife fighter, you know, the first when I first heard that, I kind of thought, mate, kind of what the fuck is that? Us guys from at least from Australia, I guess we're a bit um behind, mate. And it's kind of the equivalent of um uh, you know a pub bottle fighter or something. So right, I'm kind of with you on this whole knife fighter thing. I don't really, really get what a knife fighter is. And I think that was your point, but it got kind of construed. Yeah, I think I think people got emotional about it. And, you know, like, like I said, and I, I think I told Doug this, if I'd have been on the other side, maybe I'd have felt similarly. I think day one, I'd have been pissed off. Day two, you know, maybe I'd have had my feelings hurt a little bit. But by day three, I'd have been, I think, I hope, just based on, you know, the way we've done things in the past, I'd have been really looking at the way we were doing things and seeing if, if maybe there wasn't something we could do better. So I get why they, they felt the way that they did, but I also feel like what you just said, that if, if I hadn't done it the way I had, I did it, nobody would have cared. Nobody would have paid attention. You know, I mean, the, the way that, that things work in our world today is if you want people to listen, if you want people to pay attention, if you want people to share, you got to be a little bit controversial. Yeah. And if I'd have been very tactful and polite and, and nice about it, nobody would have seen it. And if nobody had seen it, then there would be no discussion and there would be no chance for evolution and growth. Absolutely. And, you know, it's funny because most people uh, or a lot of people that I know really agree with you and have these thoughts themselves. But, you know, it really just 
takes one person or a few guys to get out there and 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 say what they got to say for that evolution to happen and potentially give other people the permission to get out there and um and step up so you know you've done what a what a leader does mate so again well done mate with these uh no offense videos i wanted to ask you like what was the point for promoting them uh, what was it aimed at achieving from a personal point of view or a business point of view for yourself honestly it was totally organic i went up there to shoot the night video we were in a park across the street from where one of the funker guys lives and you know he started asking me some questions what do you think about this what do you think about that what is your thought on and there's more videos that are going to be released and the no offense thing kind of came after the fact you know i, I ended up shooting kind of a, an intro to those videos later because the funker guys are like look man i think we've got some good stuff here it's gonna rock some boats for sure but and i told him that at one point in these discussions to me I have no desire and, and I know people won't believe this or whatever, but I have no desire to be like a, a YouTube sensation or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Me, the videos are a means to an end. You know, the videos are not the end. I don't care about the videos themselves. I care about what potential they have in terms of us being able to broaden the dialogue and reach more people and enhance survivability of more people ultimately that's what it's all about right yeah i'm I'm totally cool with getting on a mat and just teaching that's my preference that's what i love that's what i would rather do but i understand too the nature of the world that we live in and social media and, and video is a big part of that so if i'm gonna really hold true to our organization and our ethos and and trying to to help as many people as i can i think it's really the only are the best route to do that. Absolutely. I agree. You made a video called Fuck Your Lineage. And then <laughs> <laughs> who cares about who you train with? I wanted to ask you, like, first of all, you're you're a guy who's, from my research, you've trained with a lot of the big names, Darren Levine, John Whitman. You've even co-published a book. Is that correct? Yeah, three, actually. Three. Uh, that was with Darren and John. Is that right? Right. Okay. So you've been in the Krav Maga game for a, a long time. I have. I was on the advisory board for Krav Maga Worldwide, so I've kind of been there. You know, I, I think you know this. The thing with videos is you got two minutes, maybe three minutes to get a message out. And even in that, you know, you, you're, you're turning it over to somebody to edit and things are going to be left on the cutting room floor. And with the, the Fuck Your Lineage videos, my thing there was, look, it's totally cool for you to be proud of your lineage. It's totally cool for you to be proud of the people that you've trained with. But at the end of the day, it only means something to you. And I don't really give a shit whether who you trained with in terms of your ability to transfer knowledge to your students. Because I know people that have trained with the best guys on the planet and they suck. And I know people that have trained with guys that nobody's ever heard of. And in my opinion, they're some of the best instructors on the planet. So the point was the guys that you've trained with, they're not going to teach for you. They're not going to fight for you. You can put their certificates on your walls and whatever. But at the end of the day, you have to be able to deliver. 
And I kind of get tired of hearing about, you know, especially in the Krav Maga world where everybody wants to say, well, Krav Maga is not a martial art. But then the first thing they do is start talking about lineage and who trained with this guy or that guy. And, you know, I'm like, I don't fucking get it. And I don't fucking care. You know? <laughs> so you think it's more about their own egos and, and that's really all at the end of the day. Look, I, I guess it's some on some level it's, you know, there's marketing that goes along with it, which I get. I mean, I, I can't begrudge anybody for doing what they, they feel like they need to do to build their business. But I really don't care who trained with Emi. You know, it doesn't matter to me because we're several decades removed from when Emi was really active. And if you're still teaching what Emi was teaching, you're not growing, you're not evolving. And that's no reflection on Emi, that's a reflection on you. I really get you on that one. It's, I guess some people can become consumed with telling people who they've trained with and what they used to do. And a lot of these people just have kind of stopped training and stopped evolving and they're still teaching stuff that's 30 years old. Yeah, and I get it because that's easy to do. You know, it's easy to take the manual that I, I had from... 15 years ago and come up with my lesson plans and okay, well, there's no real questioning what I'm doing because it's in the manual. And if anybody questions me on it, well, I can, all I have to say is, well, look, this is how the grandmaster, this is how the, the creator of the system did it, you know? And, and I think that that kind of mentality, that kind of mindset stunts growth and stunts evolution and it just, at the end of the day, it becomes a marketing tool. It becomes, well, we have this cool logo and, you know, it's open at the top and open at the bottom, which means good stuff flows in and bad stuff flows out. The problem is that's just rhetoric. It ends there. And, and then, you know, I'm speaking from firsthand experience. I'm not just guessing or, you know, listening to somebody else. I was there for a long time. And I should be clear. There are some really good Krav Maga guys out there. I mean, some really good dudes that, that I think people should train with. And I appreciate the guys that I trained with. But that's where it ends. It, it has to end there. I, I, every experience I've ever had in my life, whether it's martial arts or anything else, is a part of who I've, who I've become but it doesn't define who I am. And I think that's important to really highlight for individuals. On that note, Ryan, when did you start doing Krav Maga? You're, you're 42 years old, right? I am. I started in 2001, and before that I had done, you know, like everybody else, a few traditional martial arts and some FMA and some jiu-jitsu and some other things. And as a kid, I mean, even now, I've always been a smaller guy. So as a kid, I, I learned kind of early on that I needed to be able to, to fight a bit. I needed to be able to to run my mouth a bit and I need to be able to run a bit. I never really had much of an opportunity to do martial arts as a kid too, too much, but I, I ended up getting a couple of black belts and some traditional systems. And at some point, you know, I came to the realization that the training I was doing didn't look anything like any of the fights I had ever been in. So I, I went looking for something and I found Krav Maga and it, it looked to me like the closest thing out there to what I experienced in my own life in terms of dealing with violence. And, you know, I, I fell in love with it. I really did. I traveled all over the place because at the time where I was in the U.S., there was really 
nowhere to go. I had to train, you know, I had to travel all over the country, mostly on the West Coast to be able to get the training just because, you know, it wasn't very popular at the time. And considering you started in 2001, I think you did extremely well in terms of co-producing those books. So when did they happen? Those books, I'm going to say kind of over a period of maybe six to eight years ago, I spent some time, you know, one of the books I ended up kind of helping finish. Another book I wrote probably 90% of it. And then the third book, the last one, I ended up writing a good bit of it, but I I ended up finishing it after I had already left Krav Maga Worldwide. Okay. When you left Krav Maga Worldwide, was that when you started to do things by yourself or did you join John with the Alliance for a while? Basically what happened was we had Fit to Fight originally was just a fight program. As we traveled and did seminars kind of all over the place, the most common question we would get was, how do you run fight classes in your center and keep students? So we kind of looked in internally and, and saw what we were doing in our own training centers, and we developed a program based on what we were doing and the success we were having. And Krav Guy Worldwide adopted it, adopted the Fit to Fight sparring program, kind of without you know getting into all the gory details. Basically, we felt like some things weren't being held up on there, and we had some significant disagreements with certain folks inside the organization and decided to leave so initially we just we just left you know it was we didn't join anybody else we didn't start anything else it was well we have our own training centers if people want to do the the sparring program here it is and then kind of an unfortunate series of events happened where a good friend of mine who was running Kramaga worldwide in europe passed away and his wife his widow who i trained with a lot basically asked us to step in and, and help out. And again, you know, we felt like Krumaga Worldwide wasn't doing things the way that from a, a business standpoint, it just weren't cool. So that kind of led to us offering Krumaga in Europe through our, our relationships there, which kind of set off a firestorm and, and a series of events that just led to us creating an organization called Fit to Fight and then offering programs underneath that banner. Wow. Just recently, I've heard that you've, it's been in the video, dropping the name Krav Maga. And you mentioned that you're more Krav Maga than Krav Maga. And what I took from this, and I agree a lot, is basically a lot of, you know, organizations and people out there say Krav Maga is this and it's meant to evolve and, you know, we're meant to learn and go forward and whatnot. But you said in one of your videos that they say this and they don't do it. And we totally agree with that. So can you tell us a little bit more about why you took the words Krav Maga out of your marketing or out of your business logo. And also give us a bit of a, a description of what Fit to Fight is in this day. Sure. Obviously, it wasn't an easy decision to drop the term Krav Maga. Imagine not. No, I have, you know, I have a personal affinity for the name and for the, for the system. I spent a, a large portion of my adult life working inside of an organization and a system and, you know, training a lot to achieve a certain level. And from a business standpoint, you know, it was a really, really risky thing to do. Massive decision, actually. You know, internally, man, there was a huge debate here and I was the one driving the change, but I totally understood where all the hesitation was on it because 
we were basically going to take something that we had spent 15 years building a name on that I'd co-authored three books on and whatever. Yeah. And we were just going to, you know, push it off to the side. But at the end of the day, I felt like the things that I was seeing more and more that were being, that were representing themselves as Krav Maga, I just could no longer associate with. There are some really bad stuff out there that's being called Krav Maga and the average person, the average civilian, the average consumer, they don't know the difference if they have no experience in it. And I didn't want to be associated with all of the bad stuff that was out there. And again, I know it was crazy risky and only time will tell if it was a good choice or not. But at the end of the day, for me, I had to be able to be true to my students, be true to my affiliates, be true to my team. And even if that meant short term, it cost us some business. I just I felt like it was something that I had to do. Yeah, has some of that been driven by little issues? For example, I wrote an article a couple of weeks ago. One of the things I was talking about was how this day and age, anyone and everyone can step into a, a Krav Maga instructor course. If you've got the money, it doesn't really make a difference if you've got the experience. But there's a hell of a lot of Krav Maga instructors popping about who have only done Krav Maga for, you know, six months to a year. And all of a sudden they're promoting themselves as, you know, expert this and I trained with this guy and blah, blah, blah. So would, is that one of the reasons? And um, and what would be other reasons that you, you chose to do that? Yeah, that was a huge part of it. I don't know too much about how it is there, but here, I mean, basically it got to a point where you could have no real experience in Krav Maga and you could say that you were teaching Krav Maga. So there were traditional martial arts guys. And I'm not knocking traditional martial arts. Look, it is what it is. I'm just big on you need to be honest with your students about what you're teaching them. Here in the U.S., you had people popping up all over the place saying that they were teaching Krav Maga. And they may not have ever trained in it at all. And then you had the guys that were Krav Maga, but that were so beholden to a manual or a way. I, I can't tell you how many times I saw people argue about, well, that's not in the manual. And it drove me crazy to the point where I just, you know, I threw up my hands and I was like, I can't, I just cannot be a part of this anymore. The arguments about what is Maga and what isn't Krav Maga, to me, it's from a foundational standpoint, Krav Maga conceptually is, is similar to Ji Kune Do in that, you know, it's supposed to be, look, take what works for you and make it yours. But it became very staid and static. And, you know, if it wasn't in the manual, then it wasn't right. And I just, if our goal, and it is, is to make people safer, then I can't just have some strict allegiance to a manual or a person or a system or anything else. You know, one of the, the videos that hasn't been released yet, I hope will be released soon, is systems don't win fights. You know, at the end of the day, man, Krav Maga is not, has never won a fight. Jiu-Jitsu has never won a fight. Boxing has never won a fight. None of that stuff. It's the person. It's the individual. And it's incumbent on me as, a, as an instructor to make sure that I'm preparing my students in the best way possible and every student is not the same. And so 
teaching from a manual makes that very difficult to, to do and, and stay true to your students. Yeah, absolutely. It needs to be, uh, you know, like individualized for each person, as you said. You know, I had a thought the other day, Ryan. Uh, I'm an ex-JKD guy. Yep. And I had a thought that, you know, a passionate Krav Maga uh, person should really be a disciple of all students or at least have some, or at least understand them. And this day and age, I think if a Krav Maga person, you know, as I said, a really passionate one, if they don't have experience, particularly with um, JKD, since you mentioned it, it's it's kind of crazy. I think we should know this. Would you agree? Absolutely. Look, I look at, and, and this was part of our evolution, I look at Emi, and the guy was a national champion wrestler, a national champion boxer. He was a competitive gymnast. He invited martial arts instructors from all systems and styles from all over the world to come in and train with him. That's the way it's supposed to be. But what I saw was systems and organizations that were so insulated and felt like they needed to have all the answers that they were unwilling to admit that maybe somebody out there had something to offer and no growth happened. I train every week. I bring people in all the time in things that I'm not – look, I don't, I don't claim expert status or master status in anything, nothing. To me, that has a finality to it. Once you put one of those and, – and I'm not – if people can call themselves whatever they want to. But in my mind, if I call myself an expert or I call myself a master or whatever, guru, whatever, there's a finality to that. It's like, well, I've kind of reached the end, and I just don't believe that. We bring in wrestling coaches, we bring in judo coaches, we bring in jiu-jitsu guys, boxers, whatever, because I want to know who's doing what, and I want to be better at beating them, you know? And this day and age, you know, modern-day UFC, people are doing different things. It's not the same as it was 20 years ago, and I guess uh, you're being led by that a lot. Absolutely. Early on in my kind of training career. I, I got certified with Boss and I got certified with Frank Shamrock. I saw a need for, at the very least, an understanding what else was out there. Even if it's something that I never personally am going to attempt or going to try, that doesn't mean that somebody else isn't going to. And if I don't have a good understanding of how to deal with that, I'm going to be in big trouble. When it comes to like ground fighting and those kinds of things, I, I feel like from a guy for the longest time, the approach has been, well, just don't you know, and that's a problem. You make me remember a lot of lot of different situations, and one of them, you've probably seen this yourself, probably back in the early days, was the rear naked choke. Typically, the answer from the majority of people that I asked, you know, masters, experts, whatnot, is don't get into that situation. It's later in the timeline, la di da. And basically, what I got from that is we don't really have, and by we, I'm talking about uh, those guys don't really have a, a way out of that. There's only kind of like the early defenses and whatnot. This always led me to feel a little bit, you know, maybe depressed, man, about it all. And being a J, you know, old JKD guy, I, I think really I'm always going to be a JKD guy in my heart. It wasn't good enough. I, you know, I wanted to find the answer. I wanted to talk to as many people as I could. But is that the sort of thing you're talking about? Yeah. And the irony there is, and this is another kind of pet peeve that I've had about uh, from a guy is, 
you know, the irony with that is this penchant and want for forcing people to train from absolute negative and especially like crazy, you're face down and somebody's back mounted and they have a gun to the back of your head. That is a fucked up situation. (laughs) My thing has always been, look, if things have gone so shitty that you ended up in that position, you're probably not good enough to escape it. I would rather you spend some time on not fucking ending up there. That's the thing that's driven me nuts. Whereas if you take something like Rune Kachoke, it's like, well, don't get there. But then let's sell a seminar on dealing with some dumb shit with guns that'll never happen. Uh, fit to fight. Tell us a little bit about how you train in fit to fight. From day one, we want people starting to learn about fighting. And we're teaching, we're teaching fighting. I mean, we don't do a lot of jumping jacks and jogging and things like that. We, there's a physical component to it for sure, but things that we do are functional for fighting. So from day one, people are learning about wrestling and they're learning about pushing and pulling energies and they're learning about making space and filling space and all these things that are, are absolutely necessary in dealing with violence. They're learning from almost jump about hitting first if necessary and controlling variables as much as possible. So our emphasis is on being able to fight wherever the fight goes, as opposed to not that we don't teach self-defense. Of course we do, but we want people to be able to do as much as possible to deal with situations before they end in those worst case scenarios. So I imagine you'd spend a lot of time building attributes, speed, power, proper technique, fighting ability, as you said. I personally think that a lot of Krav Maga places don't spend enough time doing this. So you could have like a so-called expert in Krav Maga who, you know, can do his techniques on camera really well against an unresisting opponent. But under stress, they may or may not have the the speed and the, and the power and the, the timing to actually achieve the goal. Absolutely. You know, one of our things is we don't want people to collect techniques. Techniques are what they are. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't, despite what people will try to tell you. Ultimately, it's going to be up to the individual. And like you said, under extreme stress, unless you're putting people in extremely stressful situations and you're pushing them and you're testing not only physical toughness, but emotional toughness, and building them up as opposed to just tearing them down, which is what I think happens in a lot of Kramaga centers, I think you're not really preparing people to, do, to deal with survivability. You know, when we made changes to our gun defenses, I mean, that was a direct result of doing live fire training on a gun range where we hooked people up to heart rate monitors and saw how high-level people really performed under real stress and and what happened when their heart rate really got high and you know we could monitor it in real time and that led to us making changes in our weapons defenses because we saw that really good people under extreme stress basically wasn't it wasn't working the way that it worked when we were doing a demo or the way it should look on a video or or whatever the case is okay that brings me to a question that a, a student, his name is Mauricio, asks. I think it's very um, appropriate. He says, in your application approach to adding and removing techniques from your program, how does the Krav Maga mentality to methodology come into play? And 
Also, uh, how do you evolve it, ground fighting, for example, while keeping it simple and effective to, to teach and learn? It's a good question. I'm going to kind of work backwards a little bit. I think one of the issues in Krav Maga that I experienced was you have these four or five principles and there's this want to make sure that everything fits into these four or five principles, even if it, at the end of the day, it doesn't really make sense. So what we kind of did was we looked at the overall curriculum and we said, okay, anytime we teach something, we're prioritizing it over something else. So in other words, if I teach a slap kick, for example, I'm prioritizing it and I'm telling my students that it's more important, that it's more of a priority than any number of other things that I could be teaching them. So we tried to first start with eliminating. What can we take out that we feel like in the short term does not get people from zero to 100 like we want it to? And then once we did that, we went back and said, okay, based on our experiences in wrestling and jujitsu and boxing and Thai boxing and these other things, what can we add back that is that stays congruent with the rest of our system? Because that's at the end of the day, that's really important for us. So when you see our, our weapons defenses and you're, you're ending in a Russian arm and two on one and things like that, our students are doing those from day one as part of warmups. They have no idea what they're doing. But they're, they're developing that, that feel and that tactile sensitivity. So by the time the guy has a weapon or a gun in his hand, it's something they've done and felt hundreds of times, even if they didn't know exactly what it was they were doing. So our approach to curriculum building is it needs to be congruent. It needs to be consistent from day one to six years in. And we need to understand that not everybody's the same. And we need to understand that even if something maybe is, is a little bit, sometimes a little bit more complex than pluck and kick to the groin, that doesn't mean that it's necessarily something that we should discard because being on my back with somebody trying to, to cave my face in, simply having kicking off from guard may not be enough, you know? Absolutely agree. So uh, with terms of cross-training, do you, what do you think of cross-training? Should students be cross-training or do you think it kind of confuses people? I think both. Um, <laughs> I think that we strongly encourage people to cross-train. We offer different programs in our, our own training centers. I want people to do jiu-jitsu. I want people to wrestle. I want people to do Thai boxing. I want people to do those things. If their ultimate goal is to enhance their survivability, then it's incumbent upon me as an instructor to make sure that they understand where those things overlap and where they don't. But I think those things are invaluable in terms of building someone that's harder to kill. In jiu-jitsu, you're constantly working against a resisting opponent. That's just the way it is. Whereas in Krav Maga, that's not always the case. In Thai boxing, it's the same from clinch. It's the, you know, you're, you're working for somebody that's trying to keep you from doing what you're trying to do. And you're really learning in real time how to deal with those pressures as opposed to, okay, you choke me this way, I defend that way. I'm a huge advocate of cross-training, but it's incumbent upon whoever the instructor is to make sure that students keep goals and kind of applications in mind. So just be really clear with the context and where it's appropriate and where it's not. Yeah, 
And, and, and for the most part, I, don't, I guess it depends on who's teaching in the training center or whatever. I mean, we're, you know, in my centers, we're not teaching people to jump guard, for example. Even in our jiu-jitsu classes, that's not something that we're teaching. So are there things in, in our regular jiu-jitsu classes that I wouldn't recommend for self-defense? Yeah, for sure. But I, I think because in our, in our centers, we have fit-to-fight programs. We don't have a jiu-jitsu program. We don't have a Krav program. We don't have a Thai boxing program, whatever. And that may sound like semantics, but basically what I want people, what I want my instructors to understand is everybody's got to work together. I want jujitsu guys to go do tie boxing. I want tie boxing guys to go do jujitsu. I want those guys to go do Krav guy and, and defensive options or whatever. And I want them to get in shape. Do you have to be in good shape to defend yourself? No. Does it help? Yes. And then this was one of the videos, you know, you're much more likely to be a victim of some sort of health-related illness than you are to have somebody try to choke you or put a gun to your face or whatever. I saw a little brief snippet of, of the latest video, but it didn't load up properly for me. Um, it was about, from what I saw, it was about vegetables, making sure you eat them. <laughs> Can you clarify what that was about, mate? Yeah, basically it was, it was kind of what I was just touching on. You know, it was, there's a reason that we're called Fit to Fight. I want people to be fit. I want people to, we talk in terms of self-defense and defense from self. So it's great to learn all sorts of ways of dealing with violence. But I feel like if people are coming to us to ultimately enhance their lives and, and enhance their survivability, to live longer, healthier lives, then we need to get them into good shape too. Because again, the chances of me dying from heart disease or diabetes or obesity or something like that, much greater than the chances of me dying from somebody trying to choke me or shoot me or stab me or anything like that. So if we're being intellectually honest with our students, yes, you can defend yourself without being in great shape, but it's not just about being able to defend yourself. And I promise that if you're stronger and faster and fitter, you'll be more readily able to defend yourself. I like that. Defense from self. Yeah. So Anything destructive, like eating too much junk food, for example, that's really just, you know, that's bad for you. So that's really cool, man. That's really cool. And uh, I think that more and more instructors need to be really thinking that way. With that in mind, man, you're talking about the instructors. What sort of mistakes do you see instructors making within your organization and, and outside of it too that, that are common? And what, how would you fix those mistakes? That they make. One of the things that I really try to stress in our own instructor training courses is A, I don't really give a shit if you're a rock star, star athlete. Yeah, I, I want you to be fit and I want you to be able to do the things. But at the end of the day, I want, I need to know that you have the ability to get other people to do those things. So your ability to transfer knowledge is massively important. One of my biggest pet peeves and one of the things that I stress a lot in instructor courses is that classes should never become or never be about the instructor. Classes are about the students. And I've seen a lot of instructors make it about themselves. You know, it, it becomes kind of this ego-driven. You mean like it's um, them trying to be the tough guy or prove that they're the one and only, that, that sort of thing? Yeah. Okay, so a big, big show. Yeah, they become the show. And I don't really give a shit about that. And actually it pisses me off and I don't, have people like that teach for me. They won't last long. 
I want instructors to know why their students are in their classes and what they can do to help them reach those goals. I think the most common problem, or not problem, but kind of issue to, for new instructors is they want to give too much information. Yeah, I've seen that too. Yeah, we really stress that I want you to give the students just enough information to go work and not hurt themselves. You can always bring them back and give them a little bit more, and you can always bring them back and give them a little bit more. But students didn't come to hear you talk. And so the phrase we use a lot is you can't eat an elephant in one bite. You know, so if I if I get up and I teach, I'm going to teach straight punches and I tell you, OK, you take your left foot forward, your right heels off the floor, weight on the insides, of your big toes, 60, 40 on, on the balls of your feet, hands up and down, elbows in. You're going to hit with the first two knuckles, drive with your hip and your shoulder, staying in the same line, making sure that you recoil back on the same line that you went out on and blah, 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 whatever. Well, they have no idea what the hell I just said. So new instructors just talk too damn much. So I, we really stress in our instructor courses that we want you to give them just little bits, just enough to get working because a lot of people, you know, they came to hit some stuff. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's, that's an okay thing. You want them to hit things and not hurt themselves and not hurt other people. So you give them just enough, but They've probably had a long day at work or whatever, and they want to brush some stress and learn a little bit, and they don't need need to hear the history of a straight punch. Yeah, it doesn't have to be like this big, big-ass science. Right. Like, uh, with detail and detail and detail, I'll get you there. We did a podcast with a guy named Danny Zellig. I'm not sure if you've heard of him. And he said basically the same as you. Uh, he used the phrase, it's not an entertainment business. And he went on to say that things like a – a straight punch. You know, he could literally have, make a whole lesson on a straight punch. And as far as he's concerned, students should do the straight punch for hours and hours and hours. So that's what I'm hearing you saying. It's not an entertainment business and, and we really just need to keep things basic and build the basic skills. Would I be correct? I've been to probably well over 100 Karmic Centers around the world and you see people being taught how to deal with crazy gun scenarios, for example, and they can barely throw a straight punch. So I think placing a big onus on understanding the fundamentals is massively important. And I get it that that can be boring for the instructor. But again, it's not about the instructor. The best instructors figure out ways to make the fundamentals fun, to make the fundamentals interesting, and to not bore them. Classes should be interesting. I get that Instructors on some level need to be engaging and dynamic and entertaining. I don't, I don't really have a problem with that so much as long as it doesn't become about them. If the students don't enjoy the classes, then they won't come back. If they don't come back, then we're not doing our job to enhance their survivability. So there's a fine line to walk there. But just because as an instructor, I've taught straight punches for 17,000 times and I don't want to teach it for 17,001, I'd rather teach hostage with a gun well it's not about what i'd rather do we mentioned of instructors the issue of that we spoke about earlier on uh, with instructors just coming along and doing an instructor course and whatnot how long does does it take for someone to become an instructor in fit to fight and what sort of things are you looking for before they become an instructor yeah so we have a we have a prerequisite kind of program and they they have to send in an application and from an affiliate standpoint, we turn down eight out of 10. If somebody wants to affiliate with us for every 10 that we get, 
we only accept two to even start kind of the process. doesn't mean that they'll actually be- become an affiliate. It just means that they've got a chance to become an affiliate. And I don't mean this like in some kind of elitist way. You know, I just, if we don't think that somebody's going to fit either because I don't think that we're going to offer what they're looking for, or I don't think they have the, the background that we're looking for, then I see no point in us going through the process of bringing them in and having them spend money and having us spend time and, and those kinds of things. So a lot of times, well, most of the times, people are kind of ferreted out before they even get to that point. From an instructor standpoint, you know, we just had a black belt test and this was a super controversial thing. I, I got a lot of flack for it, but I, I think you figured out that I don't really shy away from that stuff too much. You know, we had 10 people test and we had five people that we decided weren't ready. And that caused a lot of waves in, in the industry where people felt like, well, it was almost like, well, they did the work, they showed up. If they didn't earn it, it was kind of on, on us, you know, and that's just not the way we approach it. You know, it's not a graduation for us. It's, it's, you, you got to show up and earn it. You got to, you got to show us. And that's the way we approach at a student level. That's the way we approach our instructor courses. So if somebody doesn't fit the bill, then they, they just won't make it, you know, and sometimes that's because it's just not a good fit. Sometimes that's because they don't have the skill sets necessary. But you need to take these sort of quality control measures if you're going to maintain a professional organization, I believe. So I think that that's good. At its height, Krumagai Worldwide was close to 250 licensees. And I saw firsthand how quality suffered. It's hard for me to fault them because I understand that with massive success comes growing pains and it it becomes difficult to, to maintain quality. But that's why we have no designs on, on having that big of an affiliate base. You know, it's just not because I don't, I don't think that we, we have the capabilities to maintain the quality that, that I would want to maintain at that size. So we just choose not to get to the side. Uh, mate, I've got a couple of questions from students before we finish up. And Daniela, she's also an instructor. She's asking, uh, have you ever you had to use Krabagai in real life? Now, I know you mentioned on a couple of videos that you have, there was an instance where the FMA guys asked you and you mentioned wrestling. So right. could you clarify that and answer Danny too, please? Sure. So I'll kind of answer this two ways. One way is, you know, I, I, I use my training and this is kind of a, I don't know if it's a cheesy answer or not, but I, I totally believe it. I use my training every day just in the way that I carry myself. Not cheesy at all, mate. I get you 100%. Yeah, you know, I think I think having a certain skill level, a certain level of confidence comes along with that, and it just makes you less likely to be a, a target, A, because you don't put yourself in bad situations, and B, even if you are, you're less likely to be targeted because of the way you carry yourself. Now, that said... I spent some time working a door at a, at a, you know, a kind of rough club and things like that. And so, yeah, from time to time, I've had to use training to come out okay. But honestly, most of the violent encounters that I had came before I started training, which I think kind of reinforces what I was talking about a minute ago in that having the training kind of leads to a less likelihood of, of having to actually need it. A lot of these things are just driven by uh, lack of confidence. So we can tend to attract situations into our lives 
just because of the type of person we are at that time. So for me, Krav Maga increased my confidence and it's gotten to a point now where 100% of the time I'm doing my best to avoid and prevent and just, you know, as you said, doing things in my day-to-day life that is Krav Maga, but some people might not see it as Krav Maga because it's not just all about fighting and, and bashing people up, right? Right. Totally agree. Cool. So next question, mate, and probably the last one, is when are you coming to Australia? That's from Mauricio. I'm waiting on the invitation. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we'll do it for sure. I'd love to. I would love to. You know, I, honestly, and all, all kidding aside, it's a bucket list place for me, man. It's, it's, it's a place that I've always wanted to go to. I've had kind of the opportunity to travel a good bit around the world. And, you know, I've seen some really cool places and some less cool places. But I've always wanted to go to Australia, so I, I would love the opportunity to, to make that happen at some point. Maybe we should talk about that on the side. I'd love to make it happen too, man. Perfect. For sure. But Ryan, look, man, thank you so much. I'd like to go on and maybe make a round two of this at some point. I guess it will come down to the people and what they want. Sure. I certainly want to. I appreciate that you've taken the time, man, and um, we're going to keep watching your videos and, and push them out there and, and we should be doing awesome stuff. So thank you so much, mate. Thanks, Kurt. I really appreciate it. No worries, buddy. You have a good one. Take care. Take care, man.